Jesus in truth and love again and again and again is answering his critics. He's saying, look at me and you'll see the blaze of glory, the Old Testament light come to life in the new. Some people will respond with anger, but notice something in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And the opening text, verse 31, so Jesus said to those who had believed in him. So the goal we have to come up with today is this. How in the world do people go from believing in Jesus, right, accepting this light in all these things that he says about himself, how do they go from there to by the end of the text they want to kill him? They pick up stones to throw at him. The audience never changes. It's static throughout. So you have this group of people, yay, Jesus, you're great. And then by the end, they're picking up rocks to stone him to death. So if we're to understand what's going on in this text, we have to understand why that is. And I think it's right in that place that we learn the lessons that this text is inviting us to learn about ourselves and about Jesus. So John's target, his, his goal in writing is belief. He wants us to hear his account and believe in Christ. So what, what in the world would shift from someone that it would say twice about them, they believe in him, and, and then utterly go away? And we heard this kind of belief back in chapter 2. Right? Jesus cleared the temple out, and it made a lot of people mad, but some people are like, man, this Jesus guy, he, he's a great revolutionary. Um, we believe in him. But it says something interesting right at the end of John 2, and we've already heard this several times, but he did not believe in them. John is saying that's not the kind of faith that he's talking about. It's not following Jesus as a fanatical, uh, religious um, Leader, it's, it's not that. Just because you think he, he's revolutionary, that's not enough. You're actually not getting who he is. And so what is it in the text today that moves from belief to, hey, we're going to kill Jesus. We've got to get this guy out of the way. I think there are two main things, and we all know that the gospel is offensive, and we hear that a lot, or maybe we say that, or maybe we realize that in our own lives, but what exactly is offensive about the gospel? That's what's in front of us today. The first offense is we have too big a view of ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves, and the gospel comes along like a wrecking ball to wreck us. And when it does that and we don't like it, it's offensive. And the second thing we'll see in here is we have too low a view of Christ. So a too elevated view of self and a too low view of Christ. We'll see if we can point out both of those things in the text. Jesus opens after this statement of belief. He says this, if you abide in my word... You are my disciples. 
In other words, from the very beginning, we hear that these people believed in him, but Jesus is saying there's something um, maybe missing here. Abide in my word. Abide simply means remain, stay put, don't move. It's a fascinating term, and John uses it a lot, over 40 times. I stopped counting at 40. Abide is a central theme of belief in John. What does it mean to believe in Christ? It means to stay right there with him. Don't move. Don't leave. Abide in my word, Jesus says. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What an amazing statement. Right? And it's been used at various points in history to great effect. But I think people that hear that sometimes miss the offense of it. Jesus is saying, if you know me, you'll know the truth. And if you know the truth, you will be set free. What's offensive in that? They pick up on it. I don't think we do. They pick up on it immediately, right? It is utterly offensive to them what Jesus is saying because he is saying this, you are slaves, You're slaves. You need to be loosed from your bonds. Hear their answer. What what do they say to this? Jesus is offering truth and freedom. and, And they say, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Which is really a hilarious answer when you consider this people as a as a whole. They've been enslaved to tons of people. Egypt. Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria. And we know that currently, while this conversation is going on, they are a puppet state of Rome. Of course they're slaves, but that's not what they're talking about. They they thought of themselves not just as a nation, but as individuals. And in that individual identity, they always viewed themselves as free. Let me read this quote from a rabbinical text of this era, the Mishnah. It says this, Quote, even the poorest in Israel are looked upon as free men who have lost their possessions, for they are sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. End quote. They simply have this as, an, as a national identity. We're free. And I think that comes perfectly in where we are as, as, as Americans. We think of ourselves fundamentally as free, and Jesus could just as well come right up to us and say, if you know me, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, because we too are enslaved. And he's going to go on to expound exactly what kind of slavery he's talking about. He's not talking about all those countries that that were oppressive to Israel. He's not talking about any of that. His answer to them is this, a truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. He's saying this slavery is not political. It's not economic. It's moral. This is ultimate bondage. Ultimate bondage like this is, this is a cosmic reality. We're born slaves to sin. One author notes, the despotic master is not Caesar, but shameful self-centeredness, an evil enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. At some level, 
Every single one of us has to reckon with this reality. We are born slaves to sin. Christ is describing the human condition, the doctrine of original sin, which is not just that the first Adam fell. It's that because of that fall, all of us are fallen. The doctrine of original sin is not that we're sinners because we sin. That is is a fatal flaw. That is not what original sin means. Original sin says this, we are sinners because we are sinners. I was talking with David about this a few weeks back, and he simply concluded we sin because of sin. Have you ever thought about that? Why do you sin? I think this question, as it comes to us, we're really, really good at this, and I'm good at this. We shift the, the reasons for our sin. We can give tons of reasons. Hey, I have this thing going on. That's why I rebel over here. I have this thing happen to me. That's why I'm sinning over here. Original sin is not letting us off the hook. Jesus is looking at all of us and saying, you are dead in your sin and you need to be set free. I think especially in this cultural moment, we find this to be offensive. Again, we look to blame anything else other than sinful heart. Jesus doesn't leave the people without hope, but he responds that he himself is the son able to set them free. The slave does not remain in the house forever, so the slave has no status. But then he points them to hope. The son has status. And if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Even with all the pushback they're giving him, he he time and time again in this narrative will offer them hope and love and freedom and joy. And here he he shifts and he wants to talk about the the status of two fathers. Jesus is simply giving them the gospel. Good news. Here's good news. Though you are slaves, yes, you are slaves in sin, there is hope. Because in the Son, with the status of the Son, with the status that He will grant you, you will no longer be a slave. That is good news. But your status before God will be one of sonship. They utterly miss it. They utterly miss it. Abraham is our father, they reply. We already know who we are. You don't have to tell us. Do you hear the offense of the gospel? They're thinking too much of themselves. We have this figured out. Look, this entire text is about identity. The whole thing, beginning to end. They're saying, we know our identity. We have that down pat. We know our stuff, Jesus. And because they think they know their stuff, they're utterly missing him. What a great lesson for us. Hearing from Jesus. What if we don't hear what we want to hear from him? 
Do we fall back on our identity? Do we fall back on our merits? Do we fall back on our goodness? I think that's exactly what we do. I'm not a slave. I'm a good person. I'm not a slave. I'm smart. I'm not a slave. Look at all these great things I've done. I am not a slave, Jesus. Here's my status. I was baptized in the church. I commune in the church. I go to church most Sundays. These are wonderful and great things, by the way. I'm not putting any of those things down, but listen, apart from the personal knowledge and faith in the person and work of Christ, you're missing the boat. You're missing who He is. All those things aren't enough. Jesus now teaches on the issue of what it means to be a son. If you're really a son of Abraham, you would treat God like he did. If they were truly children of Abraham, they would obey like Abraham did. Paul says in Romans 4, true children of Abraham are all those who believe in Christ. That's what it means to be a true child of Abraham. Faith in Christ. Second, he says, being a son of God means listening to the word of God. You you do what you have heard from your father. The main way that this crowd differs from Abraham is they utterly reject the word of God. Again, we feel the sting of what Jesus says. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. Again, pushing back. Again, our identity is set. We're comfortable. We're not born of immorality. They utterly feel the sting of what Jesus is saying about them not being true children of Abraham. What, What do you mean? We're not like Ishmael. We're the real thing. And last week we heard them ask, where is your father? Here again, they say that they're not born of sexual immorality. There's, there's also a slight coming at Jesus with this. They knew the stories. Where's your father? Weren't you born during a betrothal period, Jesus? He's he's calling them out on their parentage, and and he's saying, look, you guys need me, and they, they strike again and again and again. They strike at Jesus. They have too high a view of themselves. They're not listening. Finally, they conclude that God is their father, and here Jesus holds his harshest criticism in three ways. First, Jesus says, The reason that God is not their father is because they reject him. He's telling them this. You don't know God as your father because you reject me. Listen to this clear, very clear lesson in what he's saying. If God were your father, you would love me. For I come from him, not of my own accord, but he sent me. Hear this. This is, this is utterly clear. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject the true and living God. There is no different. This is getting into the heart of the Trinity right here. Jesus is saying to reject me is to reject God the Father. 
I think we need that lesson today. To reject Christ is to reject God. Second, he said, God isn't their father because their father is in fact the devil, Satan himself. He says, no, God is, God is not your father. You have a father, and it is the devil because you're acting like your father, the devil. Here he goes back to the garden, to, to our Old Testament lesson today. He's going all the way back and thinking about the devastating lies that occurred there and the, the murders that happened. Have you ever thought about what Satan did as murder? That's exactly, Jesus is looking back on the fall, and that's exactly what he's saying. He is a murderer. And every single person who, who's ever died has been a result of this, this lie that happened in the garden. He is a murderer. And you're acting just like him. You're acting just like your father. It's so important for us to know that Jesus is putting a sharp point on truth and lies. He's not letting lies go away. He keeps coming with the truth again and again and again. Reinhold Niebuhr famously said, No amount of contrary evidence seems to disturb humanity's good opinion of itself. It's very hard to upend our good opinion of our own selves. We're so enamored with our own identity, it's hard to get past that. And that's exactly what we see going on in this text. Third, Jesus, in his response, he claims finally to be utterly sinless. So he's contrasting their lies and their murderous ways with his own righteousness. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. Listen, he's utterly sinless. Which one of you convicts me of sin? There's only been one person that ever walked the face of the earth who could say that. Any of us ask that question, and everybody's going to be raising their hand. I can convict you of sin. Jesus is utterly sinless. This is something that we need to think about. He, he has no actual sin. That is, he, he never commits a sin. He, he, he doesn't do the act ever. Ever. Never, ever in his life. But it goes, his sinlessness goes further. He also has no inherited sin. He has no sin nature. He has no proclivity to sin in him. None. He is utterly sinless. Utterly not corruptible. Holy and harmless. Undefiled. Separate from sinners in every possible way. Perfect. None of us can be like that. People aren't perfect. There's a hilarious story of Spurgeon. He met someone at a train station who came up to him and he said he's perfect. So Spurgeon stomped his toe hard. What did the guy do? He started to rail and shout and Spurgeon was like, see... 
you're sinning now. None of us, no matter what we think about ourselves, how good we think of ourselves, are perfect. All of us are sin, sinners. So this crowd hears that what Jesus is saying, that they're, they're not good people. They're sinners, and they need a Savior. And, and again, they're moving from belief to rejection. The first way they're doing that is because they think too highly of themselves. He's just telling the truth. Now we'll see that they also reject Jesus because they think way too little of him. Notice the vileness that begins creeping out in verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Again, the whole thing, this is meant to be a slur. The whole thing is about identity. They're slurring Jesus, slandering him by calling him a Samaritan. And the irony that John wants us to see it, it, this is like a foul thing to call a Jewish male, right? That's, we're supposed to hear this as an insult, but the beauty and the irony of what John wants us to see is how Jesus handled the Samaritans. Did he think of them that way? No, just a couple of chapters ago, Jesus had to go through Samaria, where he met a woman who was utterly on the outs of society and loved her enough to tell her the truth. Drink of me and you will never be thirsty again. And then you see Samaritans coming as a field white for harvest to Jesus. Far from being a slur, this is a slur on the lips of these people, but he's already told us how Jesus views them. Do you see the beauty? The irony? Dirty Samaritan. When John is saying he loves them, see the contrast. Again and again, Jesus goes back to the Father and to the glory of the Father. I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Hear the Trinity at work. Working together, working out salvation, none seeking glory for themselves, but the other. And you see this all through the Trinity. Seeking the glory and good of another is what glorifies them. So with all the hostility, Jesus is finally going to give them their comeuppance, right? He's going he's to light them up and finally tell them, you know, he's going to set them straight. Verse 51 is astounding, truly, truly. So these are people who are calling him slurs. These are people who are ready to kill him. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. In the face of all of that, he is offering them life. He's saying, believe in me. He's telling this to to these people who, who are coming against him with ferocity. Time after time, attack after attack. If you, if you keep my word, if you believe in me, you will never taste death. If the Lord tarries, every single one of us are going to die. It's coming for all of us. In 2019, the average lifespan was 
78.79 years. That's great. You're like, man, that sounds long. If I can make it to 78.79, I'll be doing great. But think about this in light of eternity. That's nothing. That is nothing. And Jesus is coming into these dead and dying people and saying, I know who you are, and there is life available in me. Eternal life, never taste death. Embedded in Jesus' statement is this, either accept me and live in light of who I am, or you will eternally die in your sin. He's utterly exclusive, utterly true. Far from getting their attention, they think so little of Jesus, they mock him further. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. They're all dead, Jesus. This is where things begin to get interesting. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who do you think you are? Jesus has led us all this way to get get us to this question. Who is Jesus? They aren't asking in a nice way. Their evidence uh, comes again and again from the fact that people are dead. All the prophets, Abraham himself. This is central. As a disciple, Jesus goes back again to the glory of the Father. He goes again to his relationship with God himself. He tells them something amazing. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That that should pause us for a minute. What? And then they they rightly say, you're not even 50 years old. You, You haven't seen Abraham. Jesus just said he had. Abraham left his home for a land he did not know in the hope of Christ. Abraham saw Jesus in the stars, in the night sky, and the sand on the shore. Abraham saw Jesus in the covenant promise that it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham saw the glories of the gospel when he laughed, hearing that they were going to have a kid in their old age. Abraham saw the promise of life even as he negotiated the cost to buy a cave and a field to bury his wife. He saw it. He saw the day of Jesus and was glad. This should help put to end any notion that there's a separation between the Old and New Testaments. Jesus is saying very clearly, I was there. Listen, there aren't two ways. There isn't the Old Testament way and the New Testament way. Jesus is saying, I was there. There's only ever been one way of salvation through Christ and Him alone. The Old Testament people of God looked ahead to Jesus and rejoiced. And we look back on the accomplished work of Christ and we rejoice. He said, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. So the the Jews said to him, you haven't seen Abraham. And Jesus says something truly astounding that should be utterly shocking to us. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
He's saying two things that are just mind-numbing. Okay, he's saying from all eternity, he has existed. Well before Abraham, before Abraham was, before he was even a twinkle in his mother's eye, Jesus is saying he was there. Eternity passed. And then he says this, he takes the name of Yahweh in his own lips. I am and they knew exactly what he means. This is the way that God introduced himself in the Old Testament. This is his covenant name. This is, this is backing out God as big as he possibly is. This is exactly what John was telling us in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And here he's taking his name on his lips. And he's saying, this is why I can offer you eternal life. This is why if you believe in me, you will never die. You will never taste death in Christ. And this is how he does it. He himself is eternal. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He offers us life because we will have life like His. Utterly incredible. He offers eternal life because He is eternal life. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is that second offense thing, right? They think way too little of Jesus. This is the moment they pick up stones because they know exactly what he's claiming to be at this point. They take stones to kill him because they think way too much of themselves and way too little of the person and work of Christ. So here we are, the close of the feast. Or given away for people, uh, or presented away that people move from faith or belief to utter rejection and want to kill Jesus. So the applications are simply two for us. One, do we think too much of ourselves? Have you ever felt the sting of this in, in the gospel? That the gospel comes along to you and says this about you. You're a slave. You're a slave to sin. Have we felt that? And, and next, have we, have we thought too little of Jesus? And not considered how huge and, and beautiful he is? Do we reject that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for these um, incredible realities that in you, Christ, we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Forgive us, Lord, when we think too much of ourselves and too little of you. Correct us, Lord, by word and sacrament. Mold our hearts to hearts of faith. Forgive us for lack of belief. Help our unbelief. May we fly to you in faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.